and how, you've, how you are working all across the world. Let us not forget that on Sunday mornings and every other day of the week, you are working all over the world in many, many, many people's hearts, bringing many, many people to salvation in you. I thank, for, I thank you for the faithfulness of those who go, who go to difficult places, who risk their lives even to bring that message of the gospel of hope of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I thank you for we who take that message of hope to the little worlds that you've given to us right here in America that nobody else can reach but us, family members, friends, people that we work with, people we live near, that you've given us these people that we may be your light in their lives. Lord, I thank you for your word that it gives us the strength to do that. It gives us the hope and the, and the power to do that. It gives us the message to bring. The message that saved our souls and the message that can save another person's soul. Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth today as we take a look at your word once again. That our lives would be changed, that our hearts would be moved. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1984, a boy was born to a dentist and a former psychiatrist in White Plains, New York, just outside of New York City. He had an innate interest in and brain for computers. When he was only 12 years old, so this was only 1996, mind you, this preteen developed a messaging program, and his dad used it in his dental office for the receptionist to notify him that a patient had arrived without her having to yell across the room. The boy's parents knew he had a prolific talent for developing computer programs, so they hired a private computer tutor to hone his skill even more. While he was still in high school, this teenager developed a Pandora-type music streaming program. Several computer and internet companies, such as Microsoft and AOL, wanted to buy this young man's software from him, but he declined all the offers. This young man probably would have continued to live in obscurity, working for a major computer company probably, but being known for nothing else had he not developed a program which launched him into modern stardom. In 2002, while in college, he and three other friends created and ran a website program out of his dorm room. Some of you may be catching on already. The name of that website program, The Facebook. And today, this man, Mark Zuckerberg, is one of the world's youngest billionaires, and in reality, at this point, has become a billionaire several times over. In fact, anyone with any finger on the pulse of American society today knows who this guy is, knows who Mark Zuckerberg is. Our country today loves a story about someone who once lived in obscurity, who no one knew about, rising to meteoric fame. In fact, it seems like a lot of celebrities today, especially the younger ones, are, are ones who got their start simply by having a YouTube channel or an Instagram or a TikTok account. But when it comes to the one who should be the most well-known and most well-received in all of human history and the world today, that attention is sorely lacking. That reception is not there. Even as believers... How much obscurity does this one still have in our lives today? And how much does that affect our lives today? 
In order to understand the profoundness of the response that this one received when he entered the world the first time, we have to remember how John has been describing this one all the way up to this point. All the way at the beginning of our Gospel of John series, we talked about how John wanted to do the big reveal of who Jesus really is at the very beginning of his book. He didn't want to wait till the very end. He got it done right at the beginning of the book. Even though John would spend the rest of his book on the words and actions of Jesus of Nazareth and all the things that he did and all the things that he said, he wanted to be very clear about Jesus' deity and everything that goes along with that at the outset. In order for Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice, he had to be a sinless human. And in order to be a sinless human and perfect, he had to be who? God. In fact, John starts out with declaring that outright in verse 1. The Word, or Jesus, was in the beginning of the creation of the universe. The Word was with God in perfect communion within the Trinity. And if that wasn't clear enough, the Word was God. John just comes right out and says it. The Word was God. Jesus created the entire universe and everything in it including everything that we are and who we are, and most importantly, our eternal souls. Jesus, in verses 3 through 4, is our very source of life and everything that gives our lives meaning. And when we come to him in repentance and we ask God for the forgiveness of our sins based solely on the death and resurrection of Jesus and make him the king over the rest of our lives, all we're really doing is giving back to him our spiritual lives or our souls, that which was his to begin with. That's all we're really doing. We're giving back to him which was already his to begin with. See, John is portraying Jesus in this big picture essence of his deity as he relates to this world, to humanity in general, and to us personally. Jesus didn't just show up in this capacity around 4 to 5 BC as an infant Or when John the Baptist, whom we talked about last week, baptized him and he started his earthly ministry. The Apostle John wants the entire framework for the rest of this book and for the way that we think about Jesus to be based on this foundational truth of Jesus as God and all that that entails, all that that includes. If you look at all of human history, especially in a biblical sense, Jesus was also always there. In fact, he was the only way, the one and only way that the universe was created in the first place. And as such, he's the only way to full life, eternal life, and truth. Really, when you think about it, the truth that our salvation and entrance into heaven can only be found in Jesus paying our sin-death debt and rising again to give us new life. All that really is, is just a natural full circle kind of thing. It's not this piece of theology that God just wants to force on us. It just makes sense if you think about it in a biblical sense, especially with everything else he's already revealed in his word. You can't just say, Why should I have to accept Jesus as my Savior and King? Why can't I just generally be a good person and that should be good enough to get me into heaven? If you base your entire faith on what happens to you when you die on that understanding, you're completely missing the point. Completely. 
We must hand our spiritual lives and what we think is good enough for them back over to Jesus and his care since he's the source and origin of it anyway. That happens by us coming to the realization that our sin separates us from God and the only way to bridge that impossible chasm is, for, is to own for ourselves that Jesus substituted himself for us in paying for our sin on our behalf. The foundation that Jesus, as God, and the second person of the Trinity, is the source and origin of everything in the entire universe, and the source and origin of everything we are, is the entire foundation to understanding this morning's verses, verses 9 through 11. And that's why I've spent so much time on this foundation, going over everything we've talked about in the past few weeks. So, with all of that foundation in mind, let's read our verses for this morning. If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, and we're in chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 11. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John. It's in the New Testament, or you can look it up on your favorite Bible app on your phone. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I want all of us to see this together. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And that's all we're going to focus on today. Next week we'll focus on uh, the the last couple of verses in that section. In our passage last week, we talked about how John the Baptist's life's purpose in direct connection with Jesus as the light is the light, if you remember, describing Jesus as the manifestation of God's presence and God's wisdom. If you stop and think about it, those two manifestations sum up everything we need as humans in our relation to God. We have the wisdom of God given to us in his word. Everything that we need to know in both our heads and hearts about God and how we can be restored to him. In fact, Jesus himself, as the embodiment of God's word, gives us clearly the foundational instruction for how to live our lives. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And love others as the way you would want to be treated. It's very simple. But in the wisdom of God, it's all we need. Furthermore, we have the presence of God through Jesus and the Father's giving of the Holy Spirit, indwelling us, filling us with the presence of God, and opening our spiritual eyes to the revelation and wisdom of God. So again, Jesus as the light, as John will talk about in these verses we just read, again, Jesus as the light and embodiment of these two characteristics came into the same world he created. His thumbprints were on everything in the world that he, that he entered. In a way, this includes the natural world that he created, but the natural world understood and obeyed its creator much more than the human world did. We know from the Old Testament that all of creation declares Jesus as its creator, right? The heavens declare the handiwork of God. And the wind and the waves knew to shut up immediately when their creator yelled at them to knock it off. 
When the Pharisees demanded that Jesus tell all those following him, riding the donkey into Jerusalem, to stop exclaiming him as the Messiah, what did Jesus reply with? If I told them to stop, the whole natural world, the rocks, would still cry out and praise that I'm the Messiah. And Paul describes in Romans 8 that the natural world is yearning and groaning for the day of the redemption of the entire world including the natural world. When Jesus sets up his earthly millennial kingdom, the natural world will finally have rest from its thousands of years of upheaval. Most likely, what verses 9 through 10 is describing is the human world. Go back in time with me to the very beginning of the human race. Adam and Eve knew full well who their creator was. When Genesis describes how God would walk with them daily in the garden, this was probably Jesus walking with them in the garden before he came to earth fully as a human. So Adam and Eve's relationship with God, with their creator, was a daily walk and conversation with Jesus himself, the light of the world. That's why our our salvation, found only in Jesus, makes all the sense in the world. It's really our restored relationship with God. A restored relationship, a daily walk with, and a daily conversation with Jesus. It comes full circle. Adam and Eve's first two sons, Cain and Abel, also knew full well who their creator was. In fact, they knew full well that they were expected to bring sacrifices to their creator on a regular basis. Even though Cain willfully held back what he knew he was supposed to sacrifice to God, he still knew full well that it was God who held his fate in the palm of his hand. But it's not too long after that that things start changing. Cain's great-great-great-grandson, a man named Lamech, is the first one in recorded human history to not recognize Jesus as his authority. He may have known at one point that Jesus was his creator, but in Genesis 4, 23-24, we see Lamech stripping away all the authority over his life from Jesus and taking it solely for himself. Whereas Cain threw himself at God for God's mercy on him after the murder he committed, Lamech outright boasts about the murder he commits and takes the revenge away, revenge authority away from God and gives it to himself. Ever since that point, humankind's knee-jerk response is to seek after human ambition and human accomplishment. Look at everything I did and leave Jesus completely out of it. I'll get to the one people group that God set aside for himself in a minute. But verses 9 through 10 are referring to everyone else in human history. Verses 9 through 10 is referring to everyone else in human history. Think about it and look at human history. At one point, God had to wipe off everyone except for one family off the face of the earth in order to save humanity from its own height of evil. 
Shortly after that, the descendants of that family built a pagan ziggurat temple to the heavens as a direct slap in the face to Jesus as their creator, authority, and God. Didn't take very long after that flood for people to go right back to the way that they were thinking. It's after that world event that people spread out all over the earth. And while they have some similarities in their myths, are any of them worshiping Jesus as their God? Not one. Not one. You have the ancient Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Mayans in the Americas, Indus River peoples, Yellow River Chinese, and Greek civilizations, not to mention all the smaller people groups strewn about the ancient world, all beginning to exist before Abraham. And they all had polytheistic and pagan religions, not one worshipped the one true God. In fact, by the time we, got, we get to Abraham, thousands of years after creation, in about 2000 BC, not one people group is worshipping the one true God. Abraham himself, the father of Israel, was a moon god worshipper before God called him to faith in him. Then you follow all the rest of human history up to Jesus. And with the exception of the Jewish people, which we'll get to in a minute, they all still had polytheistic and pagan religions. Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Hellenistic Greeks, Incan, and Roman empires. Again, not one worshipped the one true God. And if you look at all of those religions, including all those which arose after Jesus ascended back to heaven, which includes Islam, any New Age-related beliefs, I'd go even so far as to include Roman Catholicism in its practice. All of them, including Judaism at the time of Jesus, every single belief system of every single people group that has ever existed except for one in all of human history is based on human merit. You can think about it. Look at every single faith system, every single belief system. It's all based on human merit. Every single one, that may look different, it may disguise itself differently, but every single one is based on what and how much you can do. What or how many sacrifices you can make, how many candles, prayers, good acts, positive vibes, self-affirmations, or levels you can accomplish and achieve. This is why. Once you remove the Trinitarian God and what his message of truth, love, and salvation from sin has always been from the beginning of time, from your life, your purpose, and your being, what's all that you're left with? Yourself. That's all you're left with. Yourself as the authority of your life. And as soon as that happens, we have the origin of all the belief systems in all of human history, save one. Paul described this clearly when he wrote, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. Came up with their own faith systems, their own religions. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. 
And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. But God's plan from the very moment of creation was to have a full relationship with the humans he created. That's what it was always supposed to be about. It was our ancestors, the very first two humans, who wanted to write Jesus out of the equation of what their life was supposed to be and what? Be like God themselves, right? And from that point on in human history, we've dealt with the heartbreaking and evil results of trading a full relationship with God for wanting to be like God ourselves. This in turn resulted in a life focus of human achievement and human accomplishment, which naturally, seamlessly flowed into that being the foundation of every belief system that has ever existed in this world. Throughout the Bible, from the point of humanity's first sin, God having mercy on people and calling them back to himself is what it's been all about. 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, you see God calling a pagan named Abram to, Abram to put his faith in the one true God, when no one else on the face of the earth did so. Even the foundation of the law God gave to the nation of Israel through Moses was to be a love for and a relationship with God, which then fueled obedience to his law. Time and time again, as Israel chased after the gods of the surrounding people groups, God kept calling out to his people through his commissioned prophets to turn back to him again. But especially by the time Jesus came, even the people God called to have faith in him based their beliefs on how much they could achieve or how much they could accomplish in their following of the Jewish law. That's what they were focused on, fueled by the Pharisees and not on repentance from sin and having a restored relationship with God. So in whole, truly, when verses 9 through 10 say the whole world, the entire world did not recognize their creator when he stepped into it. The light of the world. Because they had long ago given up that faith and knowledge to create a world and beliefs based on their own selfish desires, achievement, and accomplishment. But over all the thousands of years of humanity's existence, God's plan never changed. He told the first two humans that he was going to send a savior into the world through the human race to crush sin and to crush Satan. And scripture tells us that anyone, uh, everyone who lived before Jesus was saved from his judgment of their sin, not based on what they could do, but based on their faith in him, based on their faith in his promises, and based on, the, on their faith in the revealed prophecies of a coming deliverer. That never changed. It was God's chosen people who had manipulated that plan to be the complete opposite of what it was always supposed to be. Instead of coming to God with a repentant and broken heart, with nothing in and of themselves, asking him for forgiveness and looking forward to the arrival of his deliverer, God's people made it all about, once again, what they could do and how well they could follow the law. 
So when the light, that deliverer, who had been prophesied about for thousands of years by God and through his prophets, finally arrived, not even his own people, as verse 11 says, recognized that he was that deliverer. Talk about obscurity. If they had paid any attention to the prophecies, they would have known he was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, to be born from a virgin woman, to reveal the truths of the kingdom of God, to live a sinless life, to be God, to suffer and die but not see the decay of death, and eventually rule over the entire earth. Most importantly, they should have known, they would have known that this Messiah would be the deliverer from their sin and be the only one to restore them to God. Obviously, there were some Jewish people who recognized Jesus as the deliverer and the light, just as though there were those who had true faith in God since the beginning of humanity. But by and large, as John points out, God's own people were so wrapped up in what they could do and not how they could have a restored and growing relationship with God, that the light passed them by, and they had no clue that he was God in the flesh. Instead, what they did was take God in the flesh, and nail him to a cross, and hurl mocking insults at him. That's what they did instead. As one biblical scholar made note of, John 1.11 is perhaps one of the saddest verses in the entirety of God's word. God's people were the closest ones to Jesus, not only physically, but theologically. As Paul will also write to the Romans, they were the ones entrusted with the very revelation and words of God. If anyone had the best shot at recognizing Jesus as the light, it was God's chosen people. But as John says, even they were so wrapped up in their own self-centeredness and trying to earn salvation by way of their obedience to the law that they were completely blind to the fact that their salvation was hanging from a cross, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We'll spend more time on the profound impact of the good news that comes out of Jesus' death and resurrection when we cover verses 12 through 13. But for now, if you have not recognized yet your need for a Savior from your sin, I pray that you would do so right now. It is impossible to earn our way to God, His salvation, and His heaven on our own. It's impossible because God's Word tells us that no matter how hard we try, we will never measure up to God's holy standard. What every other belief system in the history of humanity offers is the same, and it's a total mirage. None of us can earn heaven on our own because we can't take care of our sin problem on our own. No other religion in the world even addresses that. It's just how much you can do. But it doesn't address how to get rid of the sin problem in your life. No matter how many religious things we accomplish, we're still left with that nagging sin. In fact, that sin will remain with us until the day we die. And the just payment for our sin is death. 
physical death, which we all still must pay, but also what the Bible describes as the second death, or hell, eternal banishment from God's presence, and a place of eternal physical and emotional torment. Nothing changes what we deserve and what we're all destined for because of our sin, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try. The one plan that has been God's only plan since before he even created the universe was to be the deliverer who paid the death payment for our sin on our behalf, thus restoring us to himself if we own that for ourselves. If we recognize that we are powerless to change our sinful state before God, no matter how much we try to make up for it, and rather we repent of that sin, wanting only for God to forgive us of our sin, based only on Jesus being our substitute and paying our sin death payment for us, we then return all of who we are to Jesus' kingship and authority. Again, like I've said several times this morning, it all comes back full circle. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is our source of life. Jesus is our authority. That never changed. John said that at the very beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. He was always our authority. He was always our creator. We just come to the realization that that's always been the truth. That's always been the plan. And we give back to him what was his to begin with, our souls. We then become God's fully adopted children with all the blessings, all the instruction, all the inheritance that come along with that, which we'll spend more time on in the very near future. Lastly, for those of us who made this decision, perhaps a long time ago, here's a question I want to pose to all of us. How obscure is Jesus still in your everyday life? In practice, and with the decisions, even seemingly small ones that we make every day, how much is Jesus present in our words and our actions? How much is Jesus present in our aspirations? How much is Jesus present in how we spend our time? Is Jesus merely an afterthought, living in obscurity on the fringes of our life that comes after we've done all that we want to do and all that we want to accomplish? Or is he as the light that is the wisdom and presence of God? What we base our every thought, every word, and every action on. How much time are we spending on bettering ourselves, making our lives more comfortable? And how much time are we spending on what Jesus wants us to be doing? How much time are we spending on focusing on what we think is best? And how much time are we spending on exploring God's word, what Jesus thinks is best? How much time are we spending worrying, losing sleep about a situation? And how much time are we spending trusting Jesus with that situation? How much are we investing in the things of this world? And how much are we investing in our spiritual lives? 
How much are we investing in being with God's people, growing closer to him through his taught word, and experiencing the movement of the Holy Spirit together as a family in one place? And how much are we investing in literally anything and everything else? How much time are we spending on ourselves, our desires, and what we want our lives to be? And how much time are we actually spending with God, with his word, and talking to him in prayer? See, I think most, if not all of us, sitting here watching this online later, have some priorities that we need to get right with God. Instead of being an afterthought, Jesus must be our everything. Because that's what he is in the first place. He must be our everything. He is all we have in this life. Everything else is just a distraction. It's just fluff or it's outright harmful to us. Let us recognize Jesus as the light in everything we do, how we're spending our time and what we're focused on. Let him be seen in everything we are, everything we say, everything we do. Paul instructs the Colossians with this very statement. And whatever you do or say, whatever it is, whatever you're aspiring to, whatever you want to see come down your road, whatever you do or say, do it for Jesus. Do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. It's very simple. That is our life's foundation. That is how we should be spending our time. That is how we should be spending our lives. That is what we should be investing in. In short, John reveals to us that Jesus is our life. Everything that we are. We simply cannot survive this life without him. And we simply cannot survive this life without the peace that only he can give. He must be our everything. And he must be everything we hinge every decision on. So when we're falling apart and we have nothing left, the only one we can turn to with any lasting strength is Jesus. He was always meant to be our source of strength and wisdom. Lift him out of any position of obscurity in every area of your life and make him the forefront of it. Make him the driving force of every area of your life. Make Jesus the light, wisdom, presence of God, and most importantly, king of every aspect of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these three verses in your word. There is so much wrapped up in them. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who has not yet taken you as their source of life, as their, as their light, as the only way to God, the only way to heaven, the only way to fulfillment, to meaning, Lord, I pray that they would repent of their sin, ask you for forgiveness of that, and make you the king of their lives. I pray that we would do so right now. And Lord, for those of us who have already made that decision, I pray that if there's any area of our lives 
that Jesus is obscure in, that Jesus is not at the forefront of, that Jesus is not what we're hinging every decision on when it comes to it. I pray that we would get that right with you. I pray that we would get the priorities we need to get right, right with you, that we would repent of what we need to repent of, and that we would have that full life. We would have that full meaning, full power of God flowing in and through every area of our lives. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here or watching online later that feels like they're just completely falling apart and they have nothing left, I pray that they would look to you. And if there's something that, they, that they've been making a, a priority that is not you, I pray that they would repent of that and make you the, the, the best and the forefront and the driving force of every area of their lives. You are all that we have. You are our everything. And I pray that that is how we live the rest of our lives. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.